0: But love is so beautiful and it's so connected to the essence of what life is, right? There's maybe moments that we never feel as alive as like that moment right before we're about to say, I do, right? Maybe in those moments, maybe those moments when we first hold a newborn baby, Maybe those moments are the moments that we in life feel the most alive. But see, the thing about love is, love isn't always going to stay easy and accessible. Love is going to be, at times, difficult. And you know that. If you've ever been in a relationship or had a friendship or lived with someone, even mom and dad, you know that loving somebody for a long time gets difficult. See, I think that sometimes we're working at the wrong things in our relationships. We're fighting the wrong fights and we're not winning. As a matter of fact, I heard a story this week that reminded me of that. A story that I think highlights if we're working on the wrong things in our relationships that we won't win. It was a story about a, a married couple. They'd been married for a while and they went to the state fair when they were at the state fair, they were, were going around. They, they didn't have much money for, to, to ride rides or go through exhibits and stuff like that. But they were just walking around and enjoying the evening. And they came to a place where there was a helicopter. And they were giving away, um, and, and not giving away, but they were selling helicopter rides for $50. And the husband just stopped and looked at the helicopter. And the wife said, well, what, what's going on? What's What's happening? And he said, you know, I've always wanted to ride in a helicopter. We've, we've worked so, so hard in life, and I know we can't afford it, but I've just always wanted to. And here's an opportunity to actually go up and one and ride. And she looked at him, and she said, but you know, we can't afford $50. $50 is really expensive, and we can't afford that. We can't even afford to ride a $5 ride. He said, yeah, I know. They went to go on, but the pilot who was standing there, there was no line. There was nobody waiting. The pilot heard them. And so the pilot came over to them and just said, hey, you know, I'd love to take you up. And and we we get to comp a few rides a day, so I'd love to take you. I want to take you up for free. I'm going to fly you around. But here's the challenge. You guys seem like you love each other, so I'm going to challenge you. If we go up, I'm going to ask you to not speak to each other the entire time that we're up there. Just enjoy the ride. And if you actually do speak. I'm going to charge you. I'm going to charge you the full price of $50. So they got in, they strapped on, and they went up in the helicopter ride, and they're flying around. The pilot is doing everything within his power to try to get them to talk. He's doing all these maneuvers, all these flips, all these uh, things to try to do. At one point, he even unlatches the door and throws one door open. Finally, they he lands the, the chopper, and him and the husband get out, and he's looking at the husband. It's like, hey, You didn't talk at all. How did you... I did my best to try to get you to talk. And you were silent the whole time. And the husband looked at him and said, Man, I almost said something when my wife fell out. But I thought, 50 bucks is 50 bucks. (laughs) See, I think sometimes... I think sometimes we're we're fighting the wrong fight. And I think sometimes that might be because we have not accurately identified what love is. So we need to think about, as we open this series called Because I Love You, exploring love, specifically the love that the Father has for us, how do we work at that? I think that often we define love as an emotion, a feeling, or an affection. All right? If I said to somebody, please tell me, how you love me, all right? Please tell me. They would describe feelings. If I went into somebody who was about to get married and said, describe your love for your, they would describe feelings and emotions and affections. But here's the thing. That's a really bad definition of love. Here's why it's a bad definition of love. Emotions are irrational. Can I get an amen from some husbands in there? Emotions are irrational, all right? How many of y'all get absolutely irrational when you're hungry? Or you get, you get angry about stuff you never, we, we call it, and it's a disease that has infected our family called being hangry. Right? My, it came through my wife's bloodline, not mine. All right, she, she gets hangry. Right? She's the sweetest, kindest, most gentle woman. But when she's hungry, emotions become irrational. Here's the second, feelings lie. How many of y'all have ever just felt something deep in your gut and been totally wrong? Feelings lie. Feelings are a horrible way to navigate life. Feelings lie. Right, my One of my early mentors used to tell me, Kevin, sometimes your feeler gets all jacked up. <laughs> it's true. It's true. When it happens, you need to rest not in what you feel, but in what you know. And our affections are fickle. Let's just be honest with each other. When it comes to the way that we are affectionate with our friends, we are often like middle school girls, right? Right? The girls who have a boyfriend this week and a different one that week. When I was in middle school, I had a girlfriend in first period and then a girlfriend in second period one time. All right, no joke, Right? That's how our affections are. They're fickle. And that is a bad way. If we define love in that context, it is a bad way to define love. Look at what the Bible says in Jeremiah 17 about our hearts. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It's scary. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is. Our hearts will deceive us. They're not a good uh, bedrock and and, and good foundation. When we live life by what we feel, we're gonna be as fickle as I was in middle school on that day, right? that That is not a way to live. So let's explore what love is. The first thing that I want you to see that love is, is love is a commitment. Love is a commitment. You see, if you describe love in the terms of, of feelings and affections, you're you're describing love as, as an adjective or a noun. But the truth is, is that love is something we do. It's a verb. It's a commitment that we make. And we must be willing to make that commitment. That's what love looks like. Look at what the Bible says in 1 John 4.19. We love each other because He first Loved us. God made a commitment before we ever failed Him, before we ever blew it, before we ever walked away. God made a commitment to us that He was going to love us. And that's a profound reality to live in. Today, I want you to know that God will never love you any more than He loves you right now. You can never do anything that impresses God. He will never sit back and look at you and go, you know what, you did that and that makes me love you a little more. We can never earn his love. God has made that commitment. And because of that commitment that he has made to love us, he will never love you any less than he loves you right now. You could never do anything, fail him in a way that would provoke him to not love you anymore. God has made a commitment to love you and that's exactly what what love is. And actually, the second point kind of connects to that. And I want to see, you're going to see as we walk through this series how this connects. And that real love finds its role model in the love that God has for us. The verse we just read said, we can love because he first loved us. I would tell you today that there's no way that you can have real authentic love in your relationship unless you have the love of the Father in your life, if you're married today. All right, there's no way Because we can only really love (coughs) with authentic love when we've been loved by the Father. John 3.16, that verse, I want you to read this with me. You've seen this verse a thousand times, but think about it as we're trying to understand what love is. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him Will not perish but have eternal life. How does God love us? How does God love us? He's given us a role model. His role model is how we are supposed to love. And the third thing in your notes I get as an observation from that verse it's this that love always gives. Love always gives. We live in a very self-centered, selfish world. And most of the time when we talk about love, we talk about what we get out of it. But love is a commitment to give. And God has demonstrated that to us time and time and time again. Look at John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There's no greater life or no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, I think that oftentimes we get confused when we talk about relationships. And most of the time when we talk about love and affection, those things that seem to kind of put its stamp on a relationship, the problem well the problem seems to be that we often are remarkably self centered in that. I heard a story. It came out of the Middle Ages. Back in, in those days, as the early church was beginning to emerge, priests and monks and pastors well, they didn't there there so many churches that were sprouting up, there weren't enough uh, pastors and, and priests to take care of all of them. And so they often did what we're familiar with in, in our uh, kind of geographical area. They, they pastored multiple churches. and One monk was traveling from a, a town that he was pastoring in to another town where he had a church, and he was traveling along the road. And he looked down, and he, he saw a, a large jewel that had spilled out of someone's uh, luggage or something that they were carrying. And in those days, it would have been virtually impossible to ever uh, figure out who that would have belonged to. He looked down and realizing that in, in one moment, he had found what would equate to six months worth of wages for someone else who was working. That's how valuable and large this stone was. He picked it up and he put it in his bag and he went on. As he approached the town where he pastored, he came upon a, a man, this man had been beaten and robbed and and really left there and and he he was destitute kind of out of his mind afraid and and this monk found him and as he was talking to him and caring for him he said he said do you i, I I've been robbed they've taken everything I have they've taken everything i have it, it, it this will be this will be a nightmare for my family and I, I'm headed there now but do you have something that I could eat?" Because they took all my food and I haven't eaten since early this morning. And I need enough food to get home. And so the monk reached in in his bag to pull out some food. And he gave him the food. But as he was pulling it out, he saw that large jewel. And he pulled it out and he gave it to him. He said, here, this should help. See, I think that is what love looks like. Love gives, and it actually brings me to the second, that last point there, that love is selfless. Love is is selfless. You see, we, because of our selfishness instead of our selflessness, we often focus on what we need in a relationship, don't we? I love talking to single people these days. Because it's not uncommon for them to say this, and I quote, I'm just looking for somebody that can meet my needs. Really? And then this is not thoroughly common, but it is. I have a list at home. <laughs> I have a list of everything that I need in the spouse. Really? How's that going? You found a person yet? All right. Everything I need. Because when we. Get, and how many of you recognize this, that when you get to that problem where, where your, your relationship is at a, at a standstill, oftentimes we're not focused, we're not being selfless, we're actually concerned about our own needs not being met. But that's not love. Love isn't self-centered. Love is selfless. Love is concerned with the other person's needs. Love is concerned with meeting their needs and taking care of their needs. I think that if we could create a radical move of singleness where people who desire to be married say, hey, you know what? I'm not looking for someone to meet my needs. I'm looking for someone that as I am, the person that I am, I can meet their needs. That would be a profound movement in our culture. And as a matter of fact, I thought I'd help you out today because i I think that the next five minutes, if you will let it, if you're married here or want to be married one day, could radically transform your marriage. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to go through and give you a list of five things that men need and five things that women need, all right, in relationships. When we kind of debuted this list and we're going through it, we came up with five things that men need and 745 things that women needed, but we, we whittled it down to five, All right, (laughs) so I'm gonna challenge you this week if you're married, if you're in a relationship to focus on meeting these needs and I'm gonna promise you that just in one week if you will focus on these things, you will see a remarkable improvement. Five things that men need in a relationship. The first one is praise and approval. Praise and approval. Here's the thing, ladies. Your men have fragile egos. They do. They don't want you to know it. They don't want you to know it, but they do. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 says of the virtuous wife that her husband's character is known throughout the city. Why do you think her char- the character of her husband is known throughout the city? Because she praises him. She praises him publicly and privately. She affirms him. I've taught you this before. All right? It's Vastly important to let your words provide affection and affirmation for him. Number two, what does a man need in a relationship? Respect and honor. Respect and honor. All right. He needs you to treat him like he's your husband, like he's valuable, like you care about what he says, that you respond to what he asks you to do, that your your opinion of his opinion is very high. And some of you say, well, that's just not who my husband is. All right. I've told you before that I think honor in a relationship works a lot like the cork in the bucket principle. Your husband's character as a wife will often rise to the level of honor that you give him. So don't honor him where he is. Honor him where you want him to be. Number three, he needs a sense of physical connection, physical touch, okay, could be in there. And that's in both an intimate and non-intimate ways. Your husband needs to be uh, hugged. He needs to be have his, his back rubbed. He needs... Um, other other things as well all right and let me let me just say this if you withhold that as a weapon if you withhold that as a weapon all you're doing is setting yourself up for failure you're not you're not hurting anybody but you all right number 4 your husband needs space your husband needs space Your husband needs space. He needs time when you're not, uh, you're not desiring to be the center of his attention. He needs, you, it needs to be okay for him to go out in the garage and pedal around on a car or go out into his room and, and, and play with whatever he does, right? I don't, who knows what husbands do in their man caves, right? But he needs space. He needs space. And number four, he needs emotional intimacy. Emotional intimacy. I know most of women are going, "What? That's not my husband. He does not never get emotional with me." All right, let me let me explain what I mean. And this is so. This is so important, and and so many of us get this wrong. Your husband needs the privilege for him to be safe at home, and when there is a chink in the armor that is exposed. Affirm him, and you love him in spite of it. He needs permission to fail and to be known in that failure. Emotional intimacy. So let's go to the long list of women, what women need. 745 whittled down to five. <clears throat> All right, let's go. Y'all ready? Number one, to be loved and desired. Desired. To be loved and desired. Here's the thing. Your wife needs to be loved the way that she receives love. Stop trying to love her the way you want to love her. All right? If every year you get her a dozen roses at Valentine's Day and she says, I don't like flowers, and you keep getting her roses, there's some disconnect there, okay? Here's the thing. If you are in a relationship and you have never made your wife or your girlfriend, take the five love languages test. You need to. So that you can understand how she sends and receives love. Maybe she's a quality time person. right? Maybe she is a gifts person. Maybe she's the, someone who wants to go and do things and have experiences. Maybe she's the person that wants to hear uh, affirmation. But love her the way that she wants to be loved. All right? And let her know that she's desired. Number two, your wife needs to be seen. That means that even though you need space, she needs to know that she gets FaceTime with you, that she can talk to you and be listened to you, that you you will pay attention to her, that you see what's going on in her life, that you understand who she is. She needs to be seen. Number three, she needs to be allowed to be nurturing. That means that when that chink in the armor is exposed, think about this with me in Genesis 3 and 2. Femininity is created as an answer to the first problem in humanity. God saw that man was alone. He said that is not good. So he created woman and put them together. All right? Femininity is always an answer to problems. I, I, think, I think that our world needs true biblical femininity, femininity in place, right? We need that. And in the same way, in the context of a relationship, men, we need when there's weakness there, we need to be loved and supported and affirmed from our wives. Number four, our wives need to be appreciated. You said thank you five years ago. That's not good enough. <laughs> All right. You said thank you. You, you. We need to see them We need to see the fact that they've washed the dishes, they've swept the floor, they've cleaned the table, they've made dinner. We need to see it, but we also need to express appreciation. We need to express appreciation. We need to let them know that we appreciate who they are and what they do in our lives. And the last thing, she needs to feel like she can count on you. She needs to feel like she can count on you. So your wife needs to know that when the chips are down you're going to be there to protect her you're going to be the one that can come in and be there and be present when she needs you she, she needs to know that she can count on you and here's the thing if we can start working in our relationships at trying to meet the other person's needs I think that what could happen we could radically transform the marriages and the relationships that we have. Because that's what love does. Love is always more concerned with meeting the needs of somebody else. And that's exactly how God loves us. God loves us by meeting our needs. See, God is not there to, to transform his love to fit us, God loves us the way that we need to be loved, the way that we need to be loved. But so many of us, so many of us have ran from that, rejected that, and I want to just help you today to see one of the most difficult ways that God goes about loving us. It's a challenge, and I want you to see it today. And we're going to start out of John 16, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, If I go away, then I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. If I go away, then I will be able to send the Holy Spirit to you And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. Now, here's the thing. I think that oftentimes we do not understand that conviction is one of the most loving things That God can do. So, what I thought I would do is help you just as we try to process through this, understand what conviction is. So let's kind of go through a more of a whiteboard graphic as to what this is. Going back to this verse, referencing this right here. Conviction is where we start with an awareness of our sin. Right? The the Bible there, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to convict us of our sin. We're going to become aware of our sin. But It's not just going to convict us of our sin, it's going to convict us of God's righteousness. So awareness of our sins plus an invitation to live God's way is what conviction is. Conviction is an invitation. It's an invitation, but it starts with this feeling and awareness that what I'm doing is sinful. I'm not, doing, I'm not doing life right. I'm not living right. I'm not being the person that God wants me to do. But there's another way. There's another way to live. Here's God's way. Here's my way. It's been sinful. Here's God's way. God's inviting me into that. That's what conviction is. So if you were writing notes, I would say this, that we, here's the problem. We don't always accept God's invitation. God convicts us but we don't accept God's invitation. And when we reject God's invitation, oftentimes what happens is we begin to live in something that's called condemnation. When we reject God's invitation, we begin to live in condemnation. This is what condemnation looks like. It starts with an awareness of our sin. But instead of receiving an invitation to follow God, what happens after that is we feel guilty and we feel shame. And then we feel afraid. And it causes us to run and to feel condemnation. Now, conviction and condemnation are totally different. And I want you to see what Romans 8 says about condemnation. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I want you to get this today. Condemnation locks you in to sin. Guilt and shame and fear causes you to hide. But conviction conviction sets you free condemnation will lock you in but conviction will set you free how many of y'all know that sometimes we're like that little kid that's totally running from god and we 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 need we need as just like little kids do sometimes we need our parents to step in and make a difference you ever needed that from god need a little butt whipping i've been there I've been there. As a matter of fact, there was something in the news recently. I don't know if y'all saw this, but I, I got a, a little clip from the news and I want you to watch this with me. The to parents to get their children off the streets like this irate mom did. She took action, went and found her son hanging out with rioters. She got physical with the teenager and did it in front of everybody. Um, to see. I stood there on the same side as the police with the shields and they were throwing bricks and I was, like, in an awe, like, it was it was like, oh, my God. And to see my son come across the street with a rock in his hand, mm-hmm. I think at that point I just lost it. You recognize the baggy sweatpants. I recognized the baggy sweatpants. He did have the hoodie on, and he did have the um, face mask on. But it was something about those sweatpants he had on. But and you also made eye contact. And we made eye contact. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. There's some of us in the room today, we've been running from God. And sometimes in condemnation, we feel like we're hiding from God. You know, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had failed God, they had went against his plan, God shows up and asks them a question. It's the first question that God ever asked man. And it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. It was because they didn't know the answer. He said, where are you? Where are you? They were hiding from God. See, I want you to understand today that the conviction of God is there because God loves you. So in the last little bit, what I want to do is help you understand how to let God love you. The first thing that we need to do is we need to accept that we're not right. We need to accept that we're not right. The issue of being right in the Bible is called righteousness. Righteousness is the quality or state of being right. And you need to know up front, you are not right. But ask yourself this question. How many fights have I gotten into with my spouse or my loved ones because I thought that I was right? The Bible calls your righteousness absolutely thoroughly filthy. You are not right. Why do we waste and throw away relationships? Because we think we're right. You need to start with the understanding that you're not right. The righteousness that we have actually comes from God. God said, all right, you can't get it right, so I'm going to send my son. He'll get it right, and then as a gift, I will give you his righteousness. It's not ours. We are not right. And we have to start from a place that accepts I am not right. Number two, we don't need to hide in guilt and shame and fear. Shame will shut down every form of intimacy that you have in life. It will cripple your capacity to be vulnerable. Shame will rob you of what life is supposed to be. Because if you can't be vulnerable, you'll never experience intimacy. And intimacy is the birthplace of love and affection and, and all of those things that make love valuable. So don't hide. Look at what John 4.18 says. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment or punishment. But he who fears has been made perfect has not been made perfect in love. There's no fear in love. You see, when we live in a loving relationship with God and God convicts us, we're not afraid to tell him and confess that I failed you, God, because we know that God has already paid the price for that failure. Conviction, conviction asks us to step outside from behind shame and fear. The third thing that I would tell you today, is to let conviction be an invitation. Let conviction be an invitation. For some of you, conviction is an invitation, and you already know it's an invitation for you to put down something. There's something that you've been carrying through life, something that's not right, something that's broken, and you know it. And you know that God is convicting you to put it down and to let go of it. For some of you, conviction is an invitation to pick something up. There's something that you're not doing that you know that you need to do. Maybe you know that you love Jesus, but you've never pursued Him. you never spent time with Him. And for some of you, for some of you today, conviction is an invitation to surrender. You see, that monk was traveling from that town to the other town again, and this time as he was walking in the edge of the town, that same man, the same man that he had met just days before came running out to him. And he said, he said Pastor, I'm, I'm in need again. I'm in need. And this man thought, man, you're just going to take me? Is that is how this is going to go? What do you need? And he said, I need whatever is inside of you that called you to give me what you gave me. I need that. I need that. And today, some of us, we need to realize that there is a bigger way to, to live and to love than you have. And conviction is what opens your eyes to see it. To run to God and say, God, I, I need what, I, what you're showing me. I know that I'm not there. I know that I failed you. But God, I need it. So I'll accept this invitation. Let's pray. God, today in your wisdom, you've invited us to step into a different reality. God, we just ask you right now in this moment to help us see that when you convict us of sin, you are not condemning us, you are inviting us into something different. And God, today, for those that are here, that have been running from you, that have felt the awareness of their sin, but have been just absolutely running from accepting that conviction and changing their lives, today we just ask you, God, to help us, help us to receive that invitation. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, let me ask you that question right now. Be honest with yourself about where you are today. Have you fully surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you laid it all down? Have you let go of all of it? Have you really surrendered? Because if God is reminding you of your sinfulness and pointing you to a a life that's different, perhaps today God is convicting you and saying, you need to surrender your life to me and let me be the Lord and Savior that guides your life. that's you and you're here and you say hey that's I've got I've got to surrender today raise your hand who else awesome who else who else who in here today knows that God has been convicting you to let go of something and you haven't let go of it raise your hand if you want to let go of it today awesome how many of you know that God has been convicting you to pick up something, to start doing something that you know you need to do, but you've been running from it. You haven't wanted to receive it. Raise your hand if that's you. Awesome. God, today we just stand and realize that you convict us because you love us. And we ask that your conviction today would come and be a powerful motivator to change our lives for your glory and your name. In the name of Jesus, we